it was. It was. So yeah. so I have my notes on um, silence, uh, but I, I think we'll let Steven start with uh, um, just sort of the, the pro side of it. I think probably like 15 minutes is good. So was, today, for the pro was today and, the silence one? Yeah, yeah. And then I'll go what? for my con for 15 minutes, and then after that we'll do sort of uh, the back and forth. What? I think he's joking. I think he's joking. He's joking. You, okay. you, <laughs> 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 like, I have <laughs> Sure. I was uh, I was already looking for my copy. <laughs> humans humans were not meant to exist as uh stop there. We just weren't sen- meant to exist, man. Word. We're gonna go super cynical. Word, let's go hug a tree and kill ourselves. Um, yeah. And on oh. that note, <laughs> Jesus, <laughs> we'll just um, the edge lords. Um, yeah, uh, hello everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of the Edge Lords podcast. Uh, I'm Brevin. I'm Stephen, and I'm Sam. And uh, we should have said better names, like I'm, you know, Dark Phoenix, um, Saber Wolf, and uh, the Eternal Flames. Uh, Ninety-two-five. Uh, I'm Darth Plagueis the Wise. Darth Plagueis the Wise. Yeah. Speaking of which, did you guys see the new Star Wars trailer? I, I did, did indeed. It okay. Uh, hold on. Hold on, Stephen. Rate it out of five and give your two hot takes briefly. Okay. Well, first, spoiler alert: we're going to be talking about the trailer, so skip you can't ahead. Spoil a trailer. Okay. Well, <laughs> I mean, you can tease a trailer. Why can't you spoil a tra- trailer? It's a teaser trailer. Can you tease a tease? I don't want to answer that question. Steven, go. <laughs> I, I, I am cautiously optimistic. Okay, well, I guess first, uh, I'm going to give it a four out of five. Cautiously optimistic about them reintroducing Sidious. I think as long as it's tastefully done, which so far they have not given me a ton of optimism around being tasteful, but as long as it's tastefully done, I think it could be really, really cool. Uh, I, my, my biggest... Objection! It was the opening scene where you have Ray facing down this weird, like Tie Fighter s speeder, and like looks like it's going to be an epic confrontation. Then she turns around and runs away from it, and then leaves. Which the whole thing just struck me as a horrible lack of planning. Like if you, you, she clearly had plenty of time to set herself up in a specific way to be able to confront this Tie Fighter speeder. She was expecting it to be coming towards. Then she like turns around, gets herself okay. But but I'm I I have a thing. I need to finish this thing. Okay. She like she turns around. She gets ready to run. Waits a few seconds and then runs and then does a cool backflip. Which, to be fair, she looked epic doing. But at the same time, why why didn't she just run to the place she wanted to be in the first place? And she has the force. Why not just run towards it and then jump over it? Why are you running away from it? Like the whole scene just didn't make any sense. So that's my hot. Those are my two hot takes. Sam. Um, I was also going to say four out of five. I think it's going to be good. I personally was of the minority where I did not hate The Last Jedi. And I I really enjoyed The Force Awakens. And so I think that I, I've liked the rebooted Star Wars movies overall. Um, and so I think that this looks pretty good. I like the style of it. I'm just cautious because they're claiming that they're going to conclude the entire saga and everything that ever was over one of the most successful movie franchises of the last, I mean, of ever. And so right as Disney plus is being announced. Well, plus all the movies, spin-off series and all that Disney's going to create, but I guess like that just feels so bold. 
And given my emotional attachment to the series, I feel like if they do it with anything less than perfection, then it will be very off-putting. For the record, I think that they haven't said that they're going to close the whole thing. I think they're taking a hiatus, in essence. Um, one of my coworkers was saying that they did some sort of interview in this and said, we saturated the market with too much Star Wars stuff. We got too overeager. We're going to finish nine, and then we're going to take a long break to try to figure out where we want to take this saga. It's not oversaturation. It's just it's garbification. Um, and here's my hot take. Uh, one what? star. And the only reason it gets one star is because of the Death Star 2 uh, uh, view, because that was gorgeous. But everything else was total garbage. Jensen's theory on the the jumping backwards thing, which doesn't make any sense, and like if she's trying to land on it, why is she activating her lightsaber? Why is she running away? Why doesn't it just shoot her? Is that it's a dream sequence. Um, and so it's just stupid, and it, and it doesn't need to make sense. Um, and it's some kind of a, of a metaphor or something. I'm intrigued um, by that. That's actually not a bad theory. In the 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 other so 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 half a star. I'm revising here. Half a star is for the Death Star Two Vista, which was beautiful. Old old person Lando doesn't get any points. Um, everything else was just hiking and looking into the middle distance. The planet that they showed wasn't inspiring. More deserts and then like basically you just have the Gungan kingdom again, except except not underwater. And then the only other redeeming thing that gets the half star is the uh, Palpatine laugh, which I don't think they're going to bring Palpatine back. I'm also taking this from, from uh, Jensen's theory is that it, it's a holocron um, of Palpatine that someone's going to find and it's going to be pivotal in, in one way. And I also, this is, this is my hot take my second hot take besides the one star. And that is that I think, I think they might redo what they did with, with Ray, that Ray is either going to be descendant of Palpatine or descendant of Skywalker, or just something like, or conceived by the force, who knows, because I think the, the Kylo reveal was too disappointing. Um, and I think there's a chance that they'll try and redo it. See, that's funny. Cause that's one thing I actually really appreciated about um, Ray's character is she really was just a normal person who happened into an extraordinary situation. And yes, she had force powers, but I kind of like the idea of, no, she's not anyone's descendant. She's just a really cool character. Now, I think that they screwed up her character arc a bit, but even then, I, on the whole, I've liked her as a character. I just wish she had to go through a few more downs before she gets to the upper. Like, Luke had to you know, go through the horrors of episode five to really become a Jedi. Ray didn't really have to go through any horrors. So I, I kind of wish that she had a little bit more challenges in front of her. No, she had those angsty, she had those angsty arguments with Luke um, on his hobo planet. Like, and she had to know. look at the, uh, at the, at the fish, uh, at the fish nuns. Do you remember that? That was a, that was a thing that happened in our star Wars official canon. No. Okay. But then who's the Skywalker in uh, the rise of Skywalker? I'm I'm fairly fairly certain it's going to be Kylo Ren, the Rise of Skywalker. He's the last Skywalker. Yeah, I I was hoping it's going to be Kylo too. I mean, you're you you really only have two options. If they introduce a third Skywalker or somehow make the Luke's Force Ghost or something, or huge plot twist, they just hyper CGI Leia and she takes over everything. (laughs) That would be real bad because she's because she's divorced now, so she's no longer Leia Solo. She's Leia Skywalker again. Good point. Well, no. Mm -hmm. she was never Leia Solo. They got married. Yeah, only they, they in the in the extended universe, not in the real no, no. canon. No, no, in the canon they got what? I thought they just they had a kid had at a, the very least. Yeah, I, I mean, thought they just had a kid together. 
Okay. I mean, it could be just that. Which, okay. I, I'm still boggled by the fact that they didn't actually kill off Leia's character in episode eight. They had a perfect out. They had a perfect out where, boom, ship explodes, off she goes. And it was honestly quite a lovely ending. Like, I, I think of the, the force, and no pun intended, but like the, the, the force of that impact to Kylo, who took this moment, refused to shoot out. Yeah, refused to kill his mother, but that didn't matter. And one of his allies did instead. Like, that's. That is huge character development, but then they turned away from it. Then, like they pulled their punch, and I, I was honestly kind of disappointed by that. I thought that was a really well crafted scene that they kind of took the teeth out of. So, with uh, uh, whatever transition um, we had, uh, 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 Sam, what are you drinking yeah. right now? I'm drinking um, again some Seattle tap water out of my Stephen. Yeah. Stuff. What, what what year is it? It's uh probably twenty eighteen, I'd say. Okay, well, it's yeah. a vintage year. Good vintage, good year. Vintage tap good water. Year. I, like that. Uh, I I too am drinking tap water, but with a little bag filled with uh, various substances that makes it tea, and also some honey. Mm. Mm-hmm. Good stuff. What I forget what tea? kind of tea. It's some sort of fruit berry tea. It tastes good, especially with honey. So I'm I'm I'm, I'm on the whole happy with it. So you're just drinking an unknown substance, is what I'm hearing. That's kind of my philosophy with teas is I generally just pick the bag that looks the coolest and throw it in and kind of call it good. I do prefer fr- fruit teas, though, so that's that's kind of where my bias lies. Well, mm. may I recommend to you my personal favorite tea at the moment, which is uh, oh. turmeric ginger tea. Mm. Um, it's sweet. It's neat. It's from Trader Joe's. Unleash the hipster in you. Um, but it, that is why you go to Trader Joe's. Is it is to, very good. To be the hipster, which I'm okay with. Turmeric ginger. Do it good Eric ginger roger that all right um well with that uh wait, wait what are you drinking what are you drinking or is that what you're drinking turmeric ginger that's what i'm drinking oh, okay okay hey i just need some clarification you just recommended that that's it's, fair 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 I, fair i'm not there i mean you did say that you were getting water for your tea but that was before that was, in was the, happening before time um in the long, but long legend ago. not <laughs> canon there's <laughs> mere myth Oh geez! Oh yeah, the extended universe. That's a whole. That's a whole thing. That, I was having that a great conversation at work with people about the E, but we're gonna have to save that for for uh, the Star Wars special. Um, upcoming no, we need to have a Star Wars uh, holiday special. The Star Wars holiday special. Yes, the Star Wars holiday special. I love it. Um, <laughs> for, so uh, for Easter. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, uh, on um, as as we know, one of the uh, great virtues of star wars um is that it has uh uh, uh sam talk about yeah. after virtue. yeah yeah after virtue so i'm summarizing this chapter uh, chapter 14 the nature of virtues and uh first thing to know is that this chapter is long it's it's really really long for mcintyre it's like over i think it's over 25 pages long 23 pages so it's, it's long but basically he attempts to recount the history of virtues and figure out if there is any kind of unifying characteristic of virtues. So he starts out by repeating the analysis of several different moral codes that he's analyzed, as well as adding in a few new ones. And the five that he chooses to focus on in this chapter are the Homeric virtues, uh, Aristotelian virtues, virtue in the New Testament, and then interestingly, those expressed by Jane Austen and Benjamin Franklin. So... He doesn't give a complete list of the virtues of any of these um, 
these schools of thought, he just kind of gives a summary of their main points. So for uh, Homer, virtue is more like what we define currently as excellence. Um, it includes physical strength, which is something that's unique um, to the Homeric virtues, and it's very different from our current conception. And the social order is something of a warrior. Basically, everybody fits into this warrior society, and their virtues are oriented to make one a good warrior. Aristotle focuses a bit more on friendship and um, phronesis, which is practical wisdom, also very different from our current times. And his social order is more of an Athenian gentleman. Uh, basically whatever will make you that gentleman and make you that proper virtuous person motivated by telos is a virtue. Uh, the New Testament adds in the virtues of faith, hope, and love, and it turns humility from a, from a vice into a virtue. It also makes the virtues available to those of the, those of the least of our society. So kind of Jesus' whole sermon about how the least of those become the greatest. I think I misquoted that, but that's the same point. And, um, and kind of be, uh, virtues become more egalitarian, but it's still building off of the Aristotelian virtues of go, going back to like a to a um, telos and a unifying motivator. Then he moves into Jane Austen, where she adds the virtues of consistency and um, qualifies agreeableness as not necessarily a virtue, but more a representation of an actual genuine virtue. She distinguishes between which virtues are genuine and which ones are simulacra, which basically means that there's representational of a genuine virtue. And then finally, he concludes with Benjamin Franklin, where who adds cleanliness, silence, and industry to his list of virtues, as well as the drive to acquire being itself part of a virtue. Now, each one of these virtues carries a different theory about what a virtue is, or each one of these systems of virtues, rather, which makes it quite difficult to compare them across history. For Homer, a virtue is to fulfill a social role, and therefore, quote, we cannot identify the Homeric virtues until we have first identified the key social roles in Homeric society and the requirements of each of them, end quote. So virtue comes out of this requirement of the social role. For Aristotle, as I said earlier, it's the telos of man. Um, basically, pursuing those internal goods is where virtues come from. And from exercising telos and virtue, a man can pursue a good life. In the New Testament, it's a supernatural good. So there's, there's that parallel with Aristotle, but basically the virtue is always a secondary concept. Uh, you're trying to pursue the supernatural good, and that pursuit leads to the virtues expressed in the New Testament. For Jane Austen, it's social roles. She holds a very traditionally Christian view of virtues, but then she fits them all in the social roles. So it's kind of integrating Christ the Christian view, the New Testament view, with that of Plato. And then finally, Benjamin Franklin is a teleological utilitarian. Basically, the end of cultivation of his virtues is happiness through success. Uh, McIntyre has this really clever note here. It's, it's a success in heaven and Philadelphia. So that's kind of Benjamin Franklin's goal. Overall, he's able to lump these into three main um, categories, three, three main con conceptions of virtues on page 185. There's either the virtue as a quality which enables an individual to discharge his or her social role, which is that of Homer. A virtue is a quality which enables an individual to move towards the achievement of the, specif of the, uh, of the specifically human telos, whether natural or supernatural, which is in Aristotle, the New Testament, and Aquinas. He hasn't talked about Aquinas yet, but he throws them in there as well. And finally, a virtue is a quality which has utility in achieving earthly and heavenly success. Franklin. 
that's interestingly it's 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 interesting to note that after page 185 uh jane austen totally drops off the picture he doesn't talk about her again but he continues to compare these three views basically quote virtue always requires for its application the acceptance of some priori account of certain features of social and moral life in terms of which it has to be defined and explained basically every single virtue is a secondary account of a primary thing in homer that's the, that's the social role in aristotle that's the good life in franklin that's the utility and the virtues are always feeding into that primary role now from there he talks about practice. He basically says that the way that we know what those primary roles are is through the practice of that specific society. And he has a really nice and simple uh, simple and succinct definition of practice on 187. Um, he says that, quote, a practice is any coherent and complex form of socially established cooperative human activity through which goods internal to that form of activity are realized are realized in the course of trying to achieve those standards of excellence, which are appropriate to, and partially definitive of, that form of activity with the result of the human powers to achieve excellence. And human conceptions of the ends and goods involved are systematically extended. So that's his definition of practice. Um, doesn't make a whole lot of sense. It is definitely not simple. Um, he gives some examples to elaborate on this and it makes a bit more sense. He talks about basically teaching a child to learn chess and how chess is a practice. Being able to play chess is a practice and doing it in and of itself leads to benefits for the individual. Um, the child starts that practice for um, external goods. Say if you're going to give the child candy to play chess um, with you, he'll do that. But as he continues to learn and practice, he'll begin to do it for internal reasons. That being the skill of being able to play well and think well. Um, he also looks in, he looks at painting. Basically, a great painter is not doing it just for the money and power they, they gain from being a great artist, but it allows them to see into the motivations of their subject and portray those motivations correctly. And he has this really interesting digression into icons that we can talk about later. Um, but that, that's kind of a digression for, for him. Basically, overall practice involves standards and rules of operation. And then he links this back into virtue. He links in the virtue through his definition of virtue. His definition is a virtue is an acquired human quality, the possession and exercise of which tends to enable us to achieve these goods, which are internal to practices, and the lack of which effectively prevents us from achieving such goods. So through practice, one is able to arrive at virtue. Now, practice of virtue, this is, after this point, his chapter begins to break down up, up until here, he's been pretty linear, and then he kind of starts to jump all over the place. Practice, practice of virtue takes place in our everyday lives, and it, but it requires a, a relationship between the participants in the virtue. And he talks about how if like, everyone's on the same footing, then obviously the virtues are expressed universally, looking at friends, and if lying to one friend and telling the truth to, to another, if you do that, you will be violating a virtue or if a professor grades two papers equitably and then one based off of his opinion of the student, that's a violation of justice. But virtues can be expressed differently depending on culture. Specifically, he looks at the virtue of telling the truth, how Lutheran pious might say that tell their children that they must tell the truth in all situations, thus leading to Kant, versus certain, like a traditional Bantau family, uh, Bantu, just pronounce one of those ways. Banto, Bantu, Bantu. Um, a traditional Bantu family 
might tell their children to not tell the truth to an unknown stranger. But in both those situations, the virtue of truthfulness is still acknowledged. So the practice can be different, but the virtue can be the same. He again reiterates how practices are where virtues emerge, that an understanding of practices is necessary in order to understand the virtues in that society, um, because virtues come from practices. And then he nuances it by saying that some practices exist with virtues and vices, so vices can also come from practices, and some practices have neither. So practices can lead to basically anything. He does give some clarifications about what exactly practices are at this point. He says basically they're never just skills and they never have a fixed goal. It's always a historical tradition. And therefore, virtues also have a historical nature. When you enter into a practice, you're entering into a historical process, and that is very similar to how virtues operate. They're always built off of the practices of previous generations. He then talks about institutions and says how basically institutions are necessary for practices to flourish, but they can corrupt practices. And he talks about liberal individualism, which he's attacked throughout the book, and I anticipate that he'll continue to attack as the book begins to close. He says that, quote, for liberal individualism, a a community is simply an area in which individuals each pursue their own self-chosen conception of the good life. So not a virtue. That institution is corrupting. Now, virtues are violated to cultivate internal goods, um, but they can harm the pursuit of external ones. And he looks at how if you possess virtues, you might not be able to, or it might, it might be unvirtuous to pursue wealth exclusively, and therefore better to cultivate an internal good. Now, he, at the end here, he tries to summarize his core conception of exactly what what his account is, exactly what his account of virtues is. Um, he says that in some ways it's not Aristotelian. It's not Aristotelian because it doesn't subscribe to Aristotle's metaphysical biology and the multiplic- and he allows for the multiplicity of human practices versus Aristotle prescribed one. However, on net it is Aristotelian um, because it requires complete, complete cognitive elaboration um, and it also accommodates the Aristotelian view of pleasure and enjoyment. Basically saying that Excellence of a practice leads to enjoyment, and whatever culture you're in, whatever your cultural practices are, if you do those right and you do those well, you will find enjoyment. It doesn't fit into Franklin's conception of virtues whatsoever, and he goes on a digression about how utilitarianism can't accept diversity of culture. And then finally, he said he says it's Aristotelian because it links into the evaluation and explanation of virtues in an Aristotelian way. Basically, one must explain why one action is performed as opposed to others instead of just saying what was performed and whether it was virtuous or not. And then his final point talks about evil practices. Basically, he, he um, sees the objection that his theory would allow for evil practices to take place. And so he says, and, and therefore it would not give rise to virtues. He gets around this by basically saying that practices aren't defined by right or wrong. They're just practices. And therefore, um, a per, um, let me see if I can get this right. That, that virtues aren't, the virtues being good or being a vice are not defined in terms of the practices being right or wrong. It's merely that virtues come from practices. And therefore, in certain situations, certain practices would be good or bad. So, so his final point, uh, from here, basically he's saying that practices don't nece- aren't necessarily good or bad. And therefore, we can't fully understand virtues if we don't understand the practices. We need to understand the practices first that lead to virtues. And that avoids arbitrariness, is that 
then we're not simply choosing between virtues, but we have the practices and the context to actually back ourselves up and be able to properly express those virtues and act in an, in an individual situation. We need the, tel the telos to conceive of a unitary human life and thus to understand individual virtues. Finally, he concludes with the question that about whether it is actually possible to have this unitary human life and whether it is possible to find a universal telos that humans should pursue. Okay, so it's a long chapter. What do you guys think? I, I, I was grateful to finally have a chapter that had structure up until like the last five pages. Yeah, um, the last five pages were by far the most rough. Interesting. He, he argues very compellingly when he actually argues something. So when he has a stream of thought that you could, you, when he has a talos, when he has a point that he's distinctly trying to make, he does a great job, but at times he seems to lose that point. And then, as you said several times, he, he wanders and it becomes very difficult to uh, keep track of. Yes. Uh, Sam, I do think there's one thing um, that I think I got differently from the at the end of the chapter. You were talking about um, a universal human life um, and whether or not you can find it because the the issue that he has is we have practices that we know people do. Virtues only can be done within practices. I think that's right. Mm -hmm. um, and but practices are relatively value neutral. So at that and there could be evil ones, and thus evil practices can be sustained by positive virtues, obviously, mm -hmm. um, and institutions that the practices are done in. So then we have a problem because we don't know how to choose the good practices. So that's what we're looking for with the um at the end of the chapter like can we think of each human life as a unity and i think that's that's different and and maybe you just misread it but it, it's not that we're looking for a universal a universal human life like this is the one way to live but that no. can you conceive of a human life as yes. a unity? yes as, that's what i meant to say and yes. that's far better explained so yes yes and then his argument at least sort of hinted at because he's very self-consciously throughout this chapter saying that this argument is just starting to get us there to sort of beat back all of the opposing uh erstwhile virtue ethicists and say actually this is the best way to do it and then he's going to try and complete his argument um in the in the following chapter with the with the unity of a human life argument i do appreciate the fact that he did acknowledge this because i i recall both back uh, back when kind of starting to to read McIntyre and Hauerwas, my initial skepticism towards virtue ethics was precisely this, that, okay, yes, you define your virtues and now you're going towards that, great. But how on earth did you even arrive towards your end goal? And the fact that he fully acknowledges this and says, yes, there are some very brilliant thinkers who clearly arrive to some very different conclusions on what constitutes an end goal this is clearly a problem. And when I, when I did kind of an intro to ethics talk with, uh, with my work team, that was one of the first things brought up by them was simply, this is, this is wishy-washy. This is people can define whatever end they want and who, who's to say that one end is superior to the other end. Um, and so I'm, I'm very relieved. I, I had actually kind of forgotten that he addressed this. So I'm very relieved that he, uh, he's going to get into this. Yeah. This and is I, definitely, Oh, go, go ahead. Oh, this is that's definitely the most common pushback I've heard to virtue ethics, um, especially on campus uh, here. Is I'll mention virtue ethics and McIntyre, and they're like, "That's great." Um, wish virtue ethics didn't justify <clears throat> bigotry and racism and all that stuff. Wait, really? Since yeah. when does it do that? Um, trying to be like absolutist and like excluding other cultures. 
Who said? We're talking about this later. We're talking about this later. I do sense a relation to Brevin's article, though, that I'm looking forward to to diving into. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, perhaps. Um, So I I think the concept that I found most instructive in this article, in addition to just sort of starting to round out the massive philosophical history that we've been wading through over the past, I don't know, uh, four months. And that is the uh, distinction between external and internal goods, which I think I've run into before, but it definitely slipped my mind. Um, And I think especially the idea of internal goods as those things that you only know through experiencing and that you do things in and of and for insert preposition themselves as opposed to as means to some other external good like wealth or fame or you know something that's exclusive to an activity and i really like the example of chess because i played chess when i was younger and i still enjoy it on occasion now i was gonna make a joke about that i'm like yeah the seven-year-old he's talking about who's good at chess is brevin yeah 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 what a nerd (laughs) nerd yeah and there really is that that really does help sort of uh, this is somewhat inarticulate but it it helps it's a it is a helpful frame of reference outside of mcintyre and outside of everything of just of a way to view life as having things that are good in and of themselves that don't require outside justification and that those things are probably the things that are most worth pursuing and i found that happy helpful something like that so that, that distinction was certainly helpful and edifying in that it does allow one to start start framing certain benefits that will come about through certain actions. Um, and it it gives leeway. McIntyre certainly says uh, these external uh, benefits aren't bad, that it is perfectly fine for a good chess player to receive money for winning a championship or something like that. It's just that those shouldn't be viewed as the ends that those are very nice, but tertiary to what the internal goods represent. To go back to the text, I think it's also instructive. um, Page 197 talking about the anti utilitarian bent of this way of looking at goods and things that we value. Because I I know when I was sort of coming up through college in um, libertarian esque boot camp, they really like, uh, you know, Bentham, they like mill um, and they, you know, are very much about the utilitarian pain pleasure being entirely subjective. Everyone values things differently. And so, you know, how can you make distinctions? And I remember reading Mill, or no, yeah, Mill, I, I think, and his higher order versus lower order pleasures. And like, like, ah, oh, that might be a way out, but it's also kind of shallow. And then in comparison to the external versus internal goods distinction that an Aristotelian model looks, it's so much more richer and makes so much more sense. And it also ties into things like institutions and communities where you have people doing things that are good and enjoyable and valuable in and of themselves without external um, motivation as the primary motivator. And those are the things that tend to work. Like, And you can think of things like the your local Lions Club or uh, um, the Boy Scouts. Or if, if we want to go really esoteric here, I'm linking back to Richard Weaver and building a cathedral in that to quote from the text, a quote, as Aristotle says, the enjoyment of the activity and the enjoyment of achievement are not ends at which the agent aims, 
but in, but the enjoyment supervenes upon the successful activity in such a way that the activity achieved and the activity enjoyed are one and the same state. Hence, to aim at the one is to aim at the other. And hence also, it is easy to confuse the pursuit of excellence with the pursuit of enjoyment in this specific sense, end quote. Mic drop. I think I actually have that one underlined. Yeah, that's a, that's a particularly good one. If, if you want to enjoy something, aim at, aim at excellence. Um, you find yourself enjoying it more and more for the best reasons. Mm-hmm. I, I I do appreciate. I also appreciate how, with practice itself, it, it's it, a practice specifically excludes any sort of subjectivity. A, a chess game has a clear winner and a clear loser. Uh, it, an artist it maybe is a bit more subjective, but it's still there's there's clear distinction of good art and art that is not good. Um, the the quote uh, on one ninety. In the realm of practices, the authority of both goods and standards operates in such a way as to rule out all subjectivist and emotivist analyses of judgment. And I, I really appreciate that. I, I suspect that that's where he's going to be really building out his case um, against the more subjectivist attacks against virtue ethics or the, the critiques uh, vis-a-vis subjectivism against virtue ethics. I, at least I suspect that that's how it's going to pan out. I do appreciate the fact that when you do link virtues to practices, it becomes a very simple, well, is this helping you become courageous? Assuming courage is a good thing, an action will or it will not help you to become courageous or something as simple as, will this help you become a better chess player or a better baseball player or what have you? And it becomes a lot less, well, I don't know, It's what's good for me isn't good for you, man. It, it becomes a lot more tangible, which I very much appreciate. Yeah, you can just shout at people, aim for excellence. And that's Precisely. that's very different from do what you feel like. Mm-hmm. And then I take a book of Aristotle and hit them over the head with it. Yes, yes. But uh, only one of the less read ones, because you keep the well-read ones for your, to yourself. Oh, oh obviously. You can obviously. still or, hit them and then keep it. No, that's a good point. And in fact, maybe I want to take my well-worn copy of Aristotle, because then it shows how much better I am than them. Because mm, mm. I'm like, oh, yes, see, I've read this, in fact. Bam! Mm. Now, one point th- that he says seems like a little bit of a contradiction is on page 195, uh, second paragraph. He says that, quote, it does not, of course, follow from an acceptance of the Socratic view of political community and political authority that we ought to assign to the modern state the moral function which Socrates assigned to the city and its laws. So what he's saying is that, at least what I'm reading here, is that we can accept a prior virtue system or a prior virtue system can be valid and we can appreciate it but given our modern society we can't necessarily accept it and we don't have to i think it's that given the modern state and what it is Mm -hmm. you cannot assign it the power to dispense or the, the 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 moral weight to dispense with uh community as if it were a um, Socratic political community. Okay. I, I don't know. It strikes me that this means that he, if anything, he's more grounded in historical fact in that it, it, he, and he says that any ethical system needs to be grounded in historical fact. And he, he looks at this idea of, of the Socratic uh, political community in that, you know, a, a proper, uh, a proper polis will be an ethical one and have this specific framework. And he just simply says, like, look, this doesn't work. It's been tried over and over, and it just simply doesn't work. And 
I appreciate the realism, but also the historical grounding in that claim. Uh, mm. So I, I, I thought it was a it was a strong move. Although, if you could flesh out how you think it's specifically contradictory, okay. that would be well, useful. Yeah, well, no. What I think is contradictory is is if he makes the statement about Socrates not applying to our modern our modern state and not functioning, then why is he thinking that we can apply Aristotle to our modern moral state and it function? Does Aristotle's ethics presuppose Socrates' politics? Oh, I'm I'm talking more about the moral state of like of affairs right now, uh, specifically as he outlined about the moral or the um like our liberal. Wait, how are you? Your the modern state in as I'm interpreting it is meaning the government. Yes, I was saying the mo- so there's the modern government and there's our state, which is that of a liberal society. Sure, our modern condition. Our modern condition. That would be a better way of phrasing it's it. It's metaphysical um, wasteland, as it were. Yes. Yes. So, ha- so given that fact, how it can Aristotle be accepted in the modern metaphysical wasteland? Because we, the I don't think the Aristotelian ethical return or revolution, how, however you want to view it, needs a or could could work with a modern with the modern government um, as its wielder or even as the wielder of it. Um, I think here he's 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 saying that we can have a strong view of what a community and what a government should be, but and the weight that a government's law should have, but it would be a mistake to assign that ideal um, uh, weight to the current government simply because it's a it's a, an entirely different animal with an entirely different moral history. See, he's, it strikes me that he's making an even stronger claim in that he's simply saying that no government would be able to do this. Not just our government, but it has been attempted several times. I mean, even Socrates lived to see how the moral government didn't work and that he was executed by it. Uh, Plato several times tried to establish a more ethical government. It just time and time again, it's been kind of proven that politics and ethics are just almost incompatible. They or no, that, that, that's too much of a strong claim, but it seems that his, his claim is, in essence, the political community that Socrates envision just simply is almost ipso facto impossible mm. yeah I, I, like i guess uh, sorry I'm, i might have misphrased my question i guess what i was saying is you know he says that we can't accept socrates well both in part because it can't work and also here because it doesn't fit with our modern politi- our modern state he also says that a separate part that liberalism has destroyed our our moral standing our moral condition I'm I'm just pushing, or I'm curious about his idea that, and his overall thesis that we can bring Aristotle virtue ethics um, back into a society where we don't even have, we, we hardly have the language to be able to talk about those anymore. I, I think that certainly is a challenge that is only in part being confronted by McIntyre. Uh, spoiler alert, he will go into this at the very end, literally the, the last page, I think, uh, before the postscript. And he will say that, in essence, we're we're in a whole load of trouble. And to bring back this proper ethical framework to bring about these uh, these more edifying ethical conversations, we are in fact waiting for another Saint Benedict. He says uh, we are we are in such a dire state that we need some form of ethical communities to be able to carry on this ethical language, kind of while. While the rest of society inevitably decays away into nothingness from, or as far as ethics are concerned, uh, hopefully not anything other than that, no post-apocalypse here. But 
these communities, these intentional communities, would be able to carry on these ethical tools for when society is ready to reintegrate them. And from this rises the Benedict option. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right. Um, yeah. Yeah. He's um, very pessimistic. All right. Uh, well, I, I hate to cut the uh, McIntyre short, but we do have articles to get to. Uh, Stephen, I believe you have a short and sweet article for us. I, I do indeed. Uh, short, certainly. It's, it's bittersweet, I would say. Uh, so my article is a rather sh- simple and straightforward one that I, I stumbled into online. Uh, Reclaiming Friendship, a visual taxonomy of platonic relationships to counter the commodic the commodification of the word friend, which is an awful lot of word soup for a rather straightforward message. Uh, the message being that the word friend has become rather watered down to the point of meaninglessness and that we are in need of clarification and refinement of exactly what this concept is. Uh, the author kind of notes the fact that we call workplace relations and acquaintances friends. I think even earlier in this podcast, I kind of slipped up even with this in mind. I slipped up and said, like, yeah, some friends from work or what have you. So kind of using that as you know evidence for this case. Uh, so we, we clearly have a diluted meeting or meaning. Sorry, we clearly have a diluted meaning uh, such that the very symbol of friend becomes weak. Quote, we have perpetrated a corrosion of meaning by overusing the word and overextending its connotation, compressing into an imperceptible difference the vast existential expanse between mere acquaintanceship and friendship in the proper Aristotelian sense, end quote. Uh, the solution the author proposes is somewhat of a crude one, uh, but not entirely wrong, I think. Uh, they draw a diagram of concentric circles, each with a, a clear hierarchy of acquaintances, persons known, known and liked, kindred spirits, and finally at the center, friends. These definitions give some amount of clarity to what a friend is and isn't, and aren't without merits. Distinguishing between the people we have some amount of fondness for, perhaps share a hobby with, or some such, and the deeper sort of friend who has it's been pointed out by McIntyre, Aristotle would nod in approval of, the one who shares our conception of eunomonia, and the one whom we feel confident will help us arrive there, this is certainly a worthwhile task. Uh, my interest in this article is a bit more meta, though. We brought up on the podcast the theme of loneliness, lack of community, and such before, and these phenomenon are fairly well known. I suppose I'm pleased to see a different angle of this project, one that seeks to reestablish the nature of a friend and clarify that our culture has a need for these sort of Aristotelian friendships, given the propensity to mistake work colleagues and loose acquaintances for these friends. And I think... If we are to acknowledge that our culture is somewhat lacking in these deeper communities that we've discussed before, I think as AA and other such uh, organizations uh, announce, the first step to it is admitting that we have a problem. And I think if we admit as a culture that a lot of times when we say friend, we don't actually mean friend, not in, I won't even say in the proper Aristotelian sense, but not in just the more deep sense of a person whom I trust and confide in and feel confident and comfortable around. Um, Until we as a society do that, I do think that it will be very difficult for us to uh, fully start reimagining what these sort of meaningful communities might look like and such. So I I was pleased by this article, very short article, uh, very sweet article. And I I think one that at least points to uh, we should have a more well-rounded idea of what a friend is. Yeah, I totally agree with you there. I mean, I think I was the one who brought up the article about a month ago about loneliness in America, and it's a huge problem. But I think that if people recognize that that's a problem and that there's a distinction between 
you know, the, this this kind of tiered distinction between acquaintances and kindred spirits and, and friends, I think that people will find that there are people whom, with whom they want to develop friendships with. And I think that our modern society is such that it's possible to do that. I mean, whether you record a podcast together to stay in touch, like we do, hey, um, hey. like it's it's possible to do, and it's possible to have genuine friendship as long as you recognize that the current methods of trying to find that are insufficient. And I think there's something, I, I really like what you said, kind of the intentionality of developing friendships. Uh, I remember reading, uh, there was uh, Xenophon's uh, kind of, uh, not biography, uh, Xenophon's take on Socrates. And Socrates, job. I, I know, right? Yes, Socrates and Xenophon. Uh, but Socrates is, he's talking uh, to one of his disciples about friendships and developing friendships. And they're talking about it in a very, almost kind of, you utilitarian not in the ethical system way but just a very well let's go find some friends and let us let us go and cultivate these friendships and we will see that they will bring about us certain goods and services and whatnot like very almost mechanistic but i think there is something quite refreshing about kind of hearing yes friendships take intentionality that you need to cultivate them you need to work on them they're not just going to kind of magically happen especially in a situation that we find ourselves with this culture where friendships are already fewer and far between. Yeah, I think one problem we have is just a poverty of language around friends and a set of commonly accepted terms for the gradations of what friends are, and also an unwillingness or uncomfortability of making those distinctions, because we're very anti-hierarchical, we're very um, anti-ranking, I guess, Mm -hmm. um, I think, with people, which has a lot of good elements, don't get me wrong, but I think just this this article helps illustrate our lack of ability to um, distinguish things, helps makes the world around us a lot fuzzier than it actually needs to be. I think the thing that I liked most in this article is talking about the ideal self versus the real self and the and that the closest friends know both the ideal self, which is you as you want to be, as you aim to be at, which just knowing a person that has something that they're aiming to be that's a worthwhile thing um, is rare enough. Um, but then also someone who the close friends are those with which you're comfortable enough to share your real self that is far from that ideal self. Um, and that the person likes you regardless or, uh, likes is again, a poverty word, but, um, um, loves I, I you. The, yes. In, 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 uh, yeah. The, the quote, I think that matches well, uh, for what you're expressing, uh, quote, the friend is one who embraces both, both being the uh, ideal versus real, uh, who embraces both and has generous patience for the rift between the two. A true friend holds us lovingly accountable to our own ideals, but is also able to forgive over and over the ways in which we fall short of them. Yeah, well said, um, article, well said. Um, but we have to move on because uh, Stephen has somewhere to be. Uh, Sam, what's your article? Yeah, my article is um, an article from First Things. Uh, a New Conservative Agenda by Daniel McCarthy. Um, so this article, basically he says that GOP conservatism is not the answer to our woes, and it's actually the cause of many of them. basically says that Trump today has defined every aspect of conservatism as an economic nationalism, and culture is decrying that and pushing back against it. Uh, he then goes into a digression about, or not really a digression, but changes angles a little bit and looks at how culture is foundational to politics and how our culture is basically flawed to the point where you can't even bring the truth forward anymore. Um, 
he talks about basically where we've we've reached a point where the terms of politics are settled. Um, and overall, throughout history, uh, societies reach this point repetitively. They reach a point when both sides kind of agree on the foundationals, and then they can debate the um, the details, and then they fracture again. And we see that right now in America, where we're, when we talk about foreign policy, both Republicans and Democrats agree we want an American leadership. Now, whatever that looks like is disputed, but we agree that that's a goal. Or when we're talking about abortion, they're at least both talking about the same thing. We also have many times where there's a choice about nature and direction. And in those times, you really don't have much of a way to talk about it. Um, His example was where we had to choose between an agrarian society, which involves slavery, and industrial development. And for basically our entire history between the signing of the Constitution and the Civil War, we were caught in that dispute and the sides couldn't talk to each other. We're now in another time of that choice where basically our class structure that we've held since the 40s is breaking down, the welfare state is falling apart, and jobs are vanishing rapidly. In spite of all that, both parties are entirely ignoring this situation. Basically, their default choice is the status quo, where we're going to go on with this fairly liberal-ish outlook. We're going to continue with the current policies that we've been using and instead of that, they're not going to set up a different world. They're not going to even consider tearing that down in favor of improving the conditions in America, uh, going back to the way it was with more community and more um, more exports. Globalization has changed America foundationally, but those changes have been ignored. Now, he, we have what he called the unproductive class um, and what the leading class is is uh, doing or instituting is what he called um, man, I, I just practiced pronouncing this and I didn't get it right. Um, palliative. What we have right now is we're looking at palliative liberalism. Pretty, um, pretty striking term. Basically saying that the government is trying to subdue people and subdue this unproductive class and put down this struggle. Uh, religion used to moderate the struggle between the working class and the leading class, but that's gone too, as we talked about a couple months ago with an article I brought up. And now we have an entire service sector, a service-centered economy. This economy is further divided between the smarts, people who are actually making the developments, handling the finances and technology, and the few physical laborers that are necessary for that. Both of them need a very expensive education to make it, but the bottom class is basically serving this aristocratic class. The more I think about it, this article sounds very Marxist. The industrial economy used to be localized, which allowed for people to organize and get the services they needed, but now it's stratified, and so the government is basically handling everything and and handling those services. The rise of socialism shows how palliative liberalism is actually failing because people are realizing that this system does not work and they're trying to find a solution, that being the government funding everything and giving them all the services. However, the author gives a more effective solution forward, and he says that that is to embrace nationalism. Quote, America's fundamental political choice now is between mild nationalism, resurgent socialism, or suicide by liberalism, whether the libertarian or the palliative sort. Basically, we should lean into our competitive advantage that America used to have and put our American citizens first, as well as, lead, as, well as grow an export-based economy in order to flourish once again. So it's a really interesting article that pulls in a lot of different perspectives um, where he uses kind of Marxist analysis of class struggle and then advocates for a nationalist, kind of a right-wing nationalist solution at the end. Fascinating, 
but I know that Brevin, you have a good response to this. Yeah, so I, I actually I read this article, um, and while a lot of the diagnosis half of the article, which were decent, so they, they they make sense in a lot of ways. They speak a lot of things that are true and that are happened and that are issues that need to be resolved. So I don't have a particular lot of commentary on the diagnosis side, except for the the um, small aside that I was musing about this today, and I think really any status quo. It's really easy to construct a coherent argument um, against because all you have to do is just find you know a particular epistemology that works with whatever argument you're you're trying to make, and no one's ever really in favor of the status quo, so you don't really have any people who defend it. But the real problem with this article, um, which we didn't really touch on in particular in the summary, is his uh, is his policy solutions, and Daniel McCarthy is you know talking about this is going to set the agenda for the 21st century, but uh, th- the article does nothing of the sort. It, it gives about four or five very low-grade, very typical Republican-ish, just kind of vaguely hawkish policies that could be done under virtually any administration, in my view, just framed differently. Except Trump can't seem to get them done. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> even that. Um, so so like he, he talks about illegal immigration and how it's driving down jobs and how it's all terrible. But at the same time, he's complaining about birth rates. And, oh, no, we're not going to have enough people. So he's like, okay, but if you keep all of the immigrants out, then people will have higher wages and then they'll have more babies. But except for that's, that's wrong. And, and, yeah, and, it's just, <laughs> and, 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 and he's like, oh, we have to make bit better trade deals. And that's about the extent that he talks about that. We have to treat our – The best our, deals. We have the to make best. the best deals. We have to make uh, we have to make trade deals with our view of our workers in their capacity as both consumers and producers. Which is like, okay, fine, view them as human beings, but that doesn't really mean anything. <laughs> um, and and it's on the whole is like I when I saw this article title, I was like, oh wow, this will be cool. I'm excited to read this. And then I read it, and I was just like, there is very little content here because the agenda is the forward looking part. And on like I said. There's any number of very plausible and compelling diagnoses that can be written. It's the forward-thinking part, which is hard. But when you have a title like that, you're claiming to have the hard part, at least with a vague conception. But what we have is, even if all of his policy solutions did exactly what he wanted them to do, they would hardly be for the 21st century. They would be maybe for the next 10 years. He doesn't even do anything to address technology, which by far is going to be the biggest issue. And and it's, yeah, it, it's like many other issues that I, or many other policy proposals that I see attempting to tackle, you know, some kind of new conservative vision or, you know, just even new, even new political vision. It's like, you know, uh, public schools are bad. So how about we make Bible reading mandatory? It's like, wow, that's not myopic (laughs) and tertiary to all of our other problems. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I was just very disappointed. And I wrote a, um, response, uh, detailing that, that actually got published in the, um, in the, uh, responses section um he wrote a sufficiently caustic reply um but anyway yes on the whole i i was disappointed with this you had you had some pretty good one-liners yourself i i particularly appreciated the uh quote the specter of low-skilled immigration driving down wages haunts mccarthy everyone wants higher wages for american workers this is hardly innovative why not call for higher minimum wages and solve the problem directly instead of draining leisure, draining money into walling off deserts. <laughs> well done. That was, Thank you. That was quite the His his reply his was 
was was uh Mr. Anderson wants to uh bail out the sink while leaving the faucet running. It's yeah. like okay, yeah, neat. Yeah. Good for you. And 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 he just totally missed the the point also. Yeah. Um but whatever. It's fine. It doesn't matter. Um, yeah, and he just like talked to because you had a little bit about TPP in there, and yeah. he he's just like I don't even know. Yeah, yeah, he's just talking about like the public opinion of TPP is his only argument. He's just like, it. but people didn't know what it was. It's like not every layperson got to read it. It's like okay, yeah, good. not every layperson can understand um, anyway. multilateral free trade agreements. He is he. To, to, yeah, to be fair, he has some legitimate stuff. I don't really care. The, the, there are things that I could have phrased better, but I don't think he ever responds either in his response to my comments or to the other guy who got quoted as comments that I don't think there's any way to categorize his solutions and quote unquote agenda as anything other than I've said it before myopic and tertiary it's Mm -hmm. short term and it's very it's focused on things that are very on the edges of the problem symptoms not um, the core disease Um, thank you for with uh, myopic and tertiary policies or policy agendas yep um, thank you for uh, indulging me there, Sam. I uh, anyway, yeah. Well, no, thank you because you you um, giving that response allowed me to have a shorter summary and thus not have to read the article in uh, depth. So it's true. Thank you. It's true. And, uh, and and actually, since I just talked for a while, I'm actually in the interest of time going to forego my article, um, although it was extremely interesting. But maybe we can get to that next week. So as we head towards the end, uh, Stephen, do you have a rant for us? Oh, shoot, rants. I had a rant. It's gone. Where did it go? I really need to write All right, these I'll things go first. Down. Um, okay. For my rant, uh, charities, there are good ones and there are bad ones. Uh, one bad one, which I will uh, not name by name, uh, but is very well known on, if you just Google search it, everyone's like, oh my God, this charity is awful. It's all of me. And oh. they're, no- <laughs> I- shh. We don't want to get sued <laughs> for, 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 for legal reasons. That was a joke. Um, <laughs> Wait, what did he say? I missed it. I he said Scientology, and I said ah. for reasons. That's a joke. Um, okay, okay. But, but this charity is 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 well known and and well known to me and my wife now for their incredibly manipulative, churched up language. Their huge amounts of mail that they send us, and it's just always coached in like these promises of blessings, and they send angel coins, and you know, just give what? x amount of money, and some priest or nun in the Vatican will pray for you. And it's like, oh, okay, this is this is very gross. That's um, called an indulgence, and, I think that's and that's why we that's why we pro- we we separated from you guys. Mm-hmm. Shut up. And um, but 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 they're very well spend their money very inefficiently. Most of their money goes to marketing and promotional materials and doesn't actually get to people who need it. By contrast, there are good charities like the one that we actually contribute to, such as the uh, Save a Family Plan. Highly recommend, uh, which is very highly rated. Uh, they make it their specific effort to get 100% of intended donations to the people that they're intended to, and they actually have that number, which is fabulous. That goes to uh, families in, in India trying to start small businesses and such, which is great. Um, and all this to say, a, a lot of charities are all air and no substance. Um, so do your research, be smart, and help people. I, I am interested, though. Have you, there's, there's a great TED Talk uh, where this guy, I think he was the CEO, or so, some of, one of the powers that be of the... Uh, uh, initiative to like get rid of breast cancer or like the a lot of the fundraising to do uh to do research on breast cancer and one of his complaints was that he got hit with this critique over and over of well so much of your your money or your donation goes into marketing and such and his response was 
well, yes, a lot of the pie does go into marketing, but think the pie is way bigger. So yes, if 100% of our money was going into breast cancer, that'd be awesome. But if 10%, I'm not sure I'm making these numbers up off the top of my head, but if 10% of our money goes into breast cancer, who cares if that 10, as long as that 10% is bigger than the original 100%, well, we've brought in more money to a good cause. So what difference does it make? So I, I am interested. What, what do you think about that sort of thing? And do you think that that's even relevant in this particular charity because angel coins sound awful. In this particular uh, charity, I'm not sure if that's relevant, but in general, um, there's definitely a ratioing that you can do. So for for example, if you're thinking more um, globally, let's say, than one charity and and one cause, um, every every dollar that's spent on promotional material is also an arms race with all other charities. So you could even say that spending any money on promotional materials beyond the absolute bare minimum is detracting not only from your budget, but now also from everyone else who also has to compete with you. Um, and that's not oh, necessarily any kind of a solvable problem, but it's just to point out that the um, it's it's definitely not as simple as uh, making the pie bigger. And and, and, and also, I'm sure there are, are cases where um, you do need a big burst of promotion or if there's a sudden urgent problem or, or something like that. But if it's an egregious percent like 75 percent goes to marketing um you can probably think that that's uh not actually well, doing as much absurd. good as you would yeah hope. also offering prayers for donations yeah that's kind of text <sighs> so slimy all right rant uh yes actually i do have one i uh, this is uh, rant might be a strong word for it but uh i happened upon a great comic uh in existential comics one of my favorite web comics and uh, the comic features Boethius uh, locked away in his prison. Uh, for those of you that don't know, Boethius was a Roman sen- senator uh, who was imprisoned for alleged treason. He maintained his innocence up to, up to the end. Uh, but he was put in prison, locked away, and he wrote this book in his imprisonment called The Consolation of Philosophy, in which the lady philosophy comes to him and speaks to him in his grief and kind of gives him words of, uh, of comfort in his distress. Although, as always, uh, the words the words of philosophy are... Rarely gentle, uh, but they are comforting nonetheless. Uh, but in this one, it is. Uh, it turns out that it is philosopher David Lewis from the 20th century who goes on this long rant on uh, modal realism and uh, counterfactuals and all these very logically uh, oriented uh, approaches to philosophy. And the point of it being that uh, this sort of stuff is both very strange in that it technically does belong to philosophy, but it's still a very strange and not very comforting branch of philosophy, uh, which, and, and also just how highly specialized a lot of philosophy fields have become in the 20th and 21st centuries, which on the one hand, I very much liked the fact that this is a valid criticism on a lot of, especially the more analytic approaches to philosophy in that they're kind of missing the point of a lot of philosophy. On the other hand, it also seemingly misses the point in that these tools may not be super important in themselves, but they help us accomplish these really important tasks of distinguishing meaning and whatnot. Wittgenstein, uh, he did a lot of work with uh, or on disproving solipsism, but to do so, he had to first do a lot of work with philosophy of language, which was a very analytic approach. So I, I really liked this comic. I thought it was excellent. Uh, and I thought it brought up a very good critique on uh, kind of missing some very important parts of philosophy uh, that the analytic field 
does somewhat fall into. But at the same time, I think itself uh, is subject to critique in that it, too, misses some of the more important parts of analytic philosophy. Uh, For my rant this week, Stephen brought nuance into his rant, and it was very inappropriate. (laughs) (laughs) How dare I? (laughs) Sam? Yeah, my rant... um, Well, first of all, I feel like our rants really... fit us into where how where we all come from where brevin talks about something catholic and Stephen goes way deep into um philosophy and i'm talking about current events as many of our listeners know i live in seattle and one of the most contemporary one of the most popular issues in seattle right now is the homelessness crisis with the release of the documentary seattle is dying um this has shot up onto the national stage and in the middle of it I'm sitting on my campus working to working with some people to help start um, host a debate on the homeless issue on campus. And what's shocking to me is how divided this topic is. Where reaching out to experts in the community and the response has been debate is inherently polarizing. We cannot talk about issues in that format. It needs to be in this discussion format, which is basically just advertising their specific issues. On the other side of that documentary that's really heated this debate up was made in a specific way where the rhetoric of the reporter basically was flying in the face of homeless rights advocates um, and almost designed to incite more anger than solutions. And so I guess my rant is just how messy Seattle is right now around this issue where there's a lot of ground for people to come together and actually talk through the issue. And I think that we could arrive at some solutions. But both sides are so opposed to talking to the, other, to the other side, and most of their solutions involve just throwing rhetoric against the other side that I am not confident, and it's very depressing because there are lives at stake. It is a, a very grim state that uh, we find ourselves in, which, not to be cute, but I think McIntyre would kind of nod and say, kind of like I told you guys, I, I predicted this 30 years ago, 40, 40, almost 40 years ago now. 35 years ago, a lot of years yeah. ago, um, he predicted this. He, he saw that our moral conversations were just heading into absolute nowhere. Um, and it is kind of sad to see that he was fairly right in that. Yeah, that's exactly what we're seeing, like, on a, on a daily basis. So, yeah. All right. Well, yeah. Sam, bringing back, restarting his streak of depressing us. Uh, I know. With his, with Dang, his rants. Did I really ever end? <laughs> I feel sure. like you had one happy one where you. Were I like, had one happy friendship. one about when after I got back from visiting you, actually. Yeah. Um, yeah and true. beyond that, it's been yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, um, I've I've got stuff to do. Sam has stuff to do. Steve has stuff to do. And reader, we like you, but we don't. Reader, listener, listener, we like you, but we don't like you that much. Uh, so for everyone here at the Problem with Reading Podcast, uh, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Sam. And we will see you next time. Listener, we sort of like you. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Enlightenment. Well done. Hey, well done, everyone. Yep, Steven, have a good time. Go to your party. Will do. Take care, everyone. Good talking. Yep. Oh, um, for the record, I will not be available next week. I call Kudu stuff. Ah, yes. Also Easter. Wait. Yes. That's next week. Well... I, I'm guessing for Catholics it's next week. Wait, do you not I mean, have I don't think, Easter or, next week? Because Orthodox are weird and they add they either add or subtract one uh, requirement for when Lent starts and therefore when Easter is. You guys just have to be different, don't you? <laughs> <laughs>
I, I don't get it, man. You guys are like the emo kids of the body of Christ. <laughs> 